You are listening to The Last Aid Station on Mountain Bike Radio, your source of off-road news and highlights. Welcome to another episode of The Last Aid Station. This is Steve. Mark is here with me. What's going on, Mark? Hey, how's it going? Um, Pretty good, man. Yeah. The, uh, it's been, a f- what, two, three weeks since we recorded, and... Uh, We've got some new, new, few new races to cover, and uh, we'll be starting to dive pretty heavy into race coverage here over the next few shows. Yeah, we've got um, we've got some races to cover today. Um, not as much news as we often have, but you know, this is kind of there's a little bit of lull in the industry, so to speak. Um, not a lot of stuff. I mean, everyone's already situated on their teams and on the industry side. You know, after Sea Otter is over. They, you know, every, the industry kind of shuts down. Um, there is one kind of like little industry thing that's coming up, but, um, it's, that's fine. I mean, I, I think more people want yeah. to be listening to the racing and, and I, I think that's what we do best anyhow. But, um, yeah. And I yeah. think as far as the, the new stuff, right? I mean, all the, I guess, big shots, heavy hitters, if their bikes are all equipped for the year as it is anyway. So it's, this would be bad timing to yeah. any new changes. Yeah. I mean, I think you're starting to see like some of the, you know, the World Cup guys and even the top endurance guys now running, whether or they're on SRAM Eagle or they're running some of the new Shimano stuff. It, it's kind of there and it's not a surprise to anybody when it shows up in, you know, someone's pit somewhere. So anyhow, we're, we're truly into the season now. There is no doubt about that. Um, big racing coming up in the very near future. Um, especially, uh, this weekend. Um, I'm not sure whether this will come out to you folks before this weekend, but, uh, this weekend is the second NUE race of the season, which Co-Hutta. is Cohutta in Tennessee. Um, races kind of like the Tennessee border, Georgia area, um, almost, almost into North Carolina, uh, but in that real mountainous area. It'll be interesting to see now that we're away from true grit, which is often a destination race where this is more of a race that everybody does every year. You often see the same people showing up and you often see the guys that really do well in the whole series showing up for this race. And often this is their first NUE race of the season. It'll be kind of cool to see where everybody's at. Um, this is truly when everybody probably by now should definitely have some fitness in them and it'll be kind of cool. With that said, a little bit later on in the show, we're going to talk about our predictions for the NUE as a whole. Um, and I'm going to throw my opinions out there knowing that I probably don't have a whole lot of clout behind any of it as we've only won NUE race so far. And I'm basing it all on hearsay and I'm going to be completely <laughs> wrong at the end of the year. Um, but it'll be interesting to just, I don't know, just talk about that kind of stuff. I'll, I'll ask you where you come up with your, your predictions. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a little new around the scene, so I'll. I'll, I'll oh yeah, yeah. We'll, uh, we'll we'll just talk about it and and see where that where that goes. And um, I'm not going to probably have um, specifics for each. Um, I may have favorites, but I'm probably I'm not going to be able to narrow it down to one person at this point. Let um, me talk about it though. Yeah, well, definitely, we'll definitely talk about who's who who we see doing very well in the NUE this year. What's going on with you? I mean, have you gotten a chance to get out and train or ride or? <laughs> no, it's uh, <laughs> honestly after doing a uh, fat bike racing all winter and I did the true grit race. I, uh, it kind of feels like it's like fall off season for me still. And so I, I did do a, uh, a big gravel ride, a hundred mile gravel ride uh, a couple weeks ago. Okay. Uh, but honestly, outside of that, I have not 
I have not put a lot of time in on the bike. In fact, as we talk today, it's probably been five or six days since I've been on my bike and I've ran a couple times, but, uh, yeah, it kind of feels like in between a little bit. So I'll have to figure out next year how to work out that whole race and then the summer and then continuing right through the winter and, and everything. So, yeah. And, and as I mentioned before, we went on the air, um, uh, this year of allergies, they're paying havoc with me yeah. as I know they are with you. Different this year. I mean, I've got all the watery eyes and tearing eyes and everything. It's usually me sneezing and sniffling and everything. But this year, it's all almost all centered on my eyes, um, which doesn't make for some pleasant riding. It seems like I'm carrying eye drops with me everywhere I go. But um, it, it's finally nice. I mean, it's finally to the point here in North Carolina where, I mean, you almost have to be consciously thinking about your hydration. You know, you're taking two bottles plus an extra bottle in your back pocket for any long rides. And so... It's kind What's of your temperatures down there. Um, we're hitting we're hitting low eighties pretty consistently now. Um, we've had we've had a few nice days and we've we've actually hit seventy something a couple of days. Yeah. But like it's still April here, and uh, I mean it was like thirty nine when I woke up this morning. Yeah, I you know I I've been doing a lot of morning rides only because I think that you know with the dew and everything on the in the mornings I don't have as much problems with my eyes and allergies, and so. I haven't been riding in the super hot parts of the day. I've been trying to knock out my rides first thing in the morning. Um, but there have been a couple of days where I've ridden and it's been more than a little bit warm. Um, so it's here. The season's here. I mean, I, I think even though we had a couple people that a couple people that are fans of the show mentioned that, you know, they were under some snow just a week ago in Colorado. Uh, I think I think we're finally beyond that. I think that was kind of a little bit of a freak thing, and everybody's training and riding, and we'll, we'll kind of see where this this season goes for everybody. And I hope it goes really, really, really well. Um, let's talk about a little bit of news. We don't have a whole lot of bunch of news, um, but one person that we covered here recently was Annika Longvad in the Cape Epic, and of course she won the Cape Epic um, this year. Just um, what was that? Maybe less than two months ago. Um, and this past weekend was the first world cup race. And who do we see winning the world cup race going away, but Annika Longvad. And so here's somebody who is a former UCI marathon world champion. Who's kind of really transitioning to the world cup racing, probably because this is an Olympic year. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if that is truthful on a lot of different guys. I've actually seen a few of the Topic Ergon guys doing the same thing, kind of transitioning and racing the shorter stuff and racing even World Cups to see if they can maybe get spots on their country's Olympic teams. And so it'll be kind of interesting to see if some guys start to move away from that just for this year, or at least for the beginning of the year to see as they qualify or don't qualify for their national teams for the Olympics, um, and then maybe move back to marathon racing. Um, but anyhow, Annika Longbad, as I'd mentioned then, a lot of guys, people use that race, the Cape Epic, for training and seeing where they're at. Well, she must have done it right. She wins the first World Cup race of the year. We don't really cover it here, but she's certainly on form. And it'll be interesting to see if she can bring that speed in the second half of the year back to marathon racing. Yeah, definitely something worth mentioning, though. Yeah. Um, in industry news, uh, the only real big industry news, of course, SRAM had released its uh, Eagle 1 by 12, whatever that it was, um, three or four yeah, weeks ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, Shimano not to be outdone. Um, I'm surprised they didn't release it at a show or at a 
an event of anything, but they have released that DI2, which is their electronic shifting, is now going to be available in the XT line. And it'll also have a Bluetooth connection to your phone, so you can follow shifting and stats and things like that. It's a pretty decent price for a full Grupo. One by 11 for that DI2 XT is going to be your run around $1,300. And that'll include your brakes and your cranks and things like that. Still a lot of money, man. It is still a lot of money. Just... Um, it's pretty reasonable, but then you realize it's really only one derailleur that's electronic because it's only a one by 11. Yeah. Um, I mean, for the, the full on heavy hitters and stuff, but for folks, uh, you know, maybe just getting into, uh, getting into racing or new to the sport a little bit, they look at their 200 bucks and they're like, I can get a whole bike for that. You know? Yeah. I, uh, I, I have, I've messed around with the road versions of DI2 and even though it's G whiz cool stuff, yeah. I've never really I've never had that much problems with my shifting or adjusting my shifting that I really need it. I mean, I understand what it's for. I understand maybe it's not meant for me, um, but it just seems to me that my biggest problem if I do have problems with shifting, it's when I have a double chain ring up front and a ten or eleven speed in the back and getting that cross chaining and rubbing of the front derailleur. But with one by eleven you don't have that. Uh, the benefit of one by 11 electronic is pretty minimal to me because rear derailers, at least in my experience, are pretty easy to adjust even on the trail. Um, but yeah, there's evidently something out there, um, for it. There's obviously an appeal for it. Oh, people will buy it. People oh will yeah. Buy it. People will buy it. Um, people will buy it and it'll be, it's, it's kind of cool. Um, you know, it's weird that like they're using the same batteries for all these different groupos and, um, shifting and why, if you're only having one battery for one derailleur, can't you minimize the battery further decrease the weight? And yeah, I'm uh, sure it has things to do with, oh, I'm sure it does. And, and I don't think and they're probably trying. Honestly, I don't think between. as much as you would think this is the case. I don't think the batteries actually weigh that much. I think they're less than. 75 grams or so or 80 grams so they're really not that heavy to begin with um but anyhow shimano released it i wanted to mention it because i'm sure you may see your neighbors your your racers that you compete against someone out there is going to be using it and it's kind of cool that it's out there and i think the more people that put out that one by 11 stuff becomes more of a standard maybe you'll see some price drops across other things um, even if it's not electronic shifting and I think that's something Shimano's focused on right now as well as bringing prices down. Yes. Yeah. And they have admitted that. Um, they have admitted that. So it's, that's it for for news. Right? Yeah. That, that's just about it. And we didn't have a whole whole ton of stuff come out um, just because. I know one thing that fits in news and, and not necessarily uh, a race recaps is the Arizona Trail Race just finished up or at least the. Uh, Neil Bachanko finished it up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's kind of hard to put this in a race recap because, first of all, Neil made sure it wasn't much of a race. Um, and the second Trust thing, um, the second thing is it, it, the Arizona Trail Race is truly a backcountry race. It doesn't get the coverage of the Tour Divide or uh, some of the more popular other, other big, bigger races. Um, it's very remote. Um, it is and pretty it much is the, yeah, pretty much the only way to follow it is, is by following track leaders, following the blue dots as they're going through their different split points and things like that. 
Um, it's interesting. Um, it's a very cool race. Um, there's, of course, a shorter distance, 300, 350. Three, 350. 350, and then, and then the full 750. 750, which yeah. ends with a hike across the Grand Canyon because you can't ride your bike. and You're not even allowed to roll your bike through it. And Correct. I believe the bike has to be disassembled and carried on your back. Well, I don't think it has to be disassembled as much as it has to be carried. So the easiest way to, to mount that on a backpack would be to disassemble the wheels, pull the wheels off, pull the wheels off, pull the seat out. Um, but it's got to be, yeah, it's got to be carried. It's it got, can't, it can't touch the ground. Right. It's got to be carried. And the, and the reason that is the case is it's not that they are worried about you necessarily rolling it is that if there are tire tracks on the ground, they can't tell if you're rolling it or riding it. And they don't want um, environmental groups and things like that seeing a bike track on the ground, and therefore you yep. immediately assume that somebody's riding it. And so you have to carry your bike. Um, it makes sense. It's actually I mean, it's, a, it's, it's pretty cool. So it's it's. I think if I'm not mistaken, I think they hit the Grand Canyon around mile six twenty five six fifty. So they do the twenty five. They yeah, they do the twenty five mile hike down into the Grand Canyon, across the bottom of the Grand Canyon, back up the other side. And then they can reassemble their bikes and finish their last 100K, or I think it's maybe a little bit more than that, 150K, um, to the border. And, it, of course, it runs from south to north, um, almost due north, um, straight across the state of Arizona. But Neil Bachenko, um absolutely crush it. Now, if you follow Mountain Bike Radio, you've been a long-time listener. Neil Belchenko actually has a show right here on Mountain Bike Radio, or has had in the past. He's kind of a busy guy racing. He's got a magazine. He's got a digital magazine, stuff like that on bike packing. It's He definitely has a full plate. And if you remember last year at the Tour Divide, when the Tour Divide came down to a three-person sprint, literally down to three guys all finishing a 15-day race across the breadth of crazy. North America or of the U.S., finishing within one hour of each other. Uh, Neil was that guy in third place um, that was trying to stay close enough to Jay to get pulled back up um, to to the winner. And so, um, big congrats to Neil. Um, I know he's been doing a ton of riding and. This is, he's doing really, really well. And he is a strong rider indeed. And if you look at some of those splits, he actually won the 350 yep. before moving on to finish the other 400 miles of the race. I think it was uh, in, uh, in seven days he did it. He yeah. Did it. Yeah. And it's, it is some harsh terrain. It is some very harsh terrain. Um, much of the trail, especially at this time of year is overgrown. And so, um, not only is it painful from the riding standpoint, it was painful from the thorns and everything else that are slapping against pretty much anything from your knee down. Um, yeah, I saw some pictures of somebody with a pretty scarred up, cut up leg from yeah thorns and whatever was hitting them going through the trails. Yeah, but it's a uh, that that's that it, that would be. I don't think I would ever want to race that, um, but I would love to do that trail. Like you know, take a. I wish I had two weeks ago and, you know, I, take my time I, and enjoy it. Two weeks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but uh, amazingly, um, Neil looked darn fresh at the finish. Um, looking at all those, look at the pictures of him crossing the line and uh, if things you remember like that. Back to the fat bike races we covered. Um, it was JP's fat pursuit that 
Neil just crushed that one. That was it the 250 mile race there. I think right. it was just like yeah. a half a day ahead of second place or something like that. Yeah. If I remember back to that. So he's, he's having a, he's having a heck of a year and it's April. <laughs> exactly. It is, it is April. Um, a couple other things, um, just I wanted to bring up before we dive into a couple other discussions and maybe into our race highlights. Mountain bike radio is we're we're really trying to build the endurance calendar. So if you have races, whether it's bikepacking, like what Neil just did, um, you're trying to put together a grassroots event for a six hour race, you're putting together a hundred mile race. Um, let us know and go to mountainbikeradio.com and, and you'll see the calendars there. And there's submission forms where you can actually submit your races. Um, all we do is we ask for the web link. We just confirm that they're um, true legitimate races and then we put them up there. There's no cost to you. We're trying to do this as a service to endurance mountain bikers and racers all around the world. And um, it's kind of focused on North America, but you'll actually find some big international events on that calendar also. Um, yeah. And you can search um, by month and figure out, you can actually figure out your race calendar for the season by trying to target whatever races are in there and how far you're willing to travel and things like that. Yeah. So. I use it to find my races. The other thing to note on there too is, and I, I believe you can still do this is get your race featured on that page. Correct. And that's something, uh, Steve and I were actually talking about this just before we went on the air, um, about how we cover the races and much of the, many of the races that we cover is not us going and searching for stuff, but actually people telling us about the races and letting us know. We don't want to just come in here and give you first, second, and third place. We want to tell stories. And so if you are a roast promoter or a racer and you've done well or you think you're going to do well or you know of a race that you think we need to cover, tell those promoters to get in touch with us. We're more than happy to – it doesn't matter the size of the event. We're more than happy to cover it as long as it kind of fits into the what we cover here, which is endurance, off-road racing, gravel, mountain biking, fat yeah. bike racing. And then – We'll cover it. We just need the stories behind it. That's what makes us different than just uh, reporting on the finish orders. We want to. We want the stories that come along with those races, and I think that's what you guys, as listeners, yeah, I think that's what the listeners enjoy. And and we're not talking about the stories of the finishers in first place. All the stories really make a difference, and we we really thank you guys for letting us know about those events. But if you haven't done that in the past, and you have a race that you want us to cover. Let us know about it. It's not that difficult. Mark at mountainbikeradio.com or Steve at mountainbikeradio.com or you can submit through the webpage um, also. So, yeah. Let's talk about speaking of racing. Um, we talked yeah. about this and I, I posted something on social media yesterday or day before yesterday. Um, and we'd actually talked about this in the previous uh, podcast the NUE. We're now into the NUE. One of the bigger races that's coming up in the next uh, four or five days, three or four days, um, with Kohuta, and we've already had True Grit. thought it'd be kind of fun to predict who's going to do very well this season in the different categories. Of course, the NUE races four categories. They race open men's, open women's, single speed, and Masters 50+. plus. Now, additionally, this year, they also have a separate series with those same categories, but with the shorter distances, 100K, 50 mile to 100K distance. I'm not going to 
have us predicting those because we don't even know who's going to be entering in those. And often you often have a lot of people entering those races that may just do one and then never do any more because they're, they're easy and they're fun to enter. And it's not something you really have to target, but I wanted to have us make some predictions on the hundred milers so that uh, later on in the season, when the final race fool's gold has come and gone, we can have a show and talk about how wrong we were. <laughs> so, um, why don't you start it off, Steve, and tell I, me? I, I think it'll be good too. We can kind of keep us going each show. Yeah, and talk about how how wrong we're still being. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, why don't you start it? What, what do you want to do? How do you want? How do you want to cover these? How do you want to discuss well, these? Yeah, let's. Uh, I'm going to probably ask you a little bit about what your predictions. I'm, you know, I'm kind of learning my way around this a little bit, but. I mean, an easy one for me to probably pick out if I was to jump into it, I find it just interesting is the single speed is there was a fairly decent sized crew out there to true grit. Yes. Uh, and there's some rugged stuff out there to be running single speed down too with some rugged climbs. But I mean, <laughs> you can't talk about single speed without Gordon Wadsworth, right? Right. And, um, uh, but yeah. there was a, there was somebody else out there that I, don't know if we saw last year at a lot of NUE stuff and who knows how many races will be it. But the, the guy that took third out to true grit, Steven Mills, mm. he took third while actually having to go back and redo like a seven or eight mile loop of the course. Yes. And he finished only seven minutes behind Gordon. Right. And so, yeah. And so the question is, you know, of course, Gordon had a, a, a major mechanical. Yeah. That probably had, offset. Had yeah. He had some, more than a little bit of tire issues. Um, but, you know, what would happen if those guys, you know, head to head, you know, no major issues, what would happen? And it's a, it's a kind of an interesting proposition. Interestingly, Mills' race mostly seems like in his race results, he mostly races West Coast stuff, Mountain Zone, West Coast stuff. Of course, Gordon races mostly East Coast stuff. He lives, um, Currently, I think he's living in Tennessee right now, Georgia, Virginia areas, often where he find he calls his local trails home. I, I mean, I think in the single speed division, I think it's it's Quadsworth's race to lose this year. He always does very well, but I think that if there is an opening, I think it will be that Gordon doesn't plan on doing as many races in the NUE as he has in the past. Um, in the past, he's done eight, nine races and he's kind of dabbled a little bit of dabbled with like four or five single speed races and then dabbled three, four, five open men's geared races. Well, or open men's where he could race geared. Um, I think he's also looking to maybe spread out a little bit and maybe race some, in, uh, races that aren't NUE. Um, that are out there. That there's a lot of races out there. There right? are. There's Better plenty there. of races, and there's plenty of races that aren't in the NUE that are very high quality races. Yeah. Um, and that aren't in it for a variety of reasons. Um, but I think if Gordon comes focuses on this, I mean, he's he's definitely the guy to beat. The one person I think that could give him a run for his money. Well, there's two. Um, one, Donald Powers. We actually beat Gordon last year at Shenandoah. Now Gordon had come okay. back with some type of parasite from the jungles of Costa Rica. Um, 
Powers has really, 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 really come along and really come into his own over the past. And he's doing very well this season so far and really come into his own as a top singles beater. And he's right in there, right in the mix. Um, he climbs very well. He's pretty powerful rider. Um, and like I said, he's firing all, on all cylinders this year. And so it'll be interesting to see. The other person I think that could do very well, and I haven't even seen any race results from him this year, is Bob Moss. Bob trains by himself a lot of the time. He's very strong. Um, he had some issues last year with some ankle issues, I think, or um, lower leg issues. But he still ended up doing very well and winning some NUE races in the latter half of the season. One other name to mention that we all know of, and when you talk about single speeding, just prior to Gordon Wadsworth's reign was Jerry Fluke. Jerry Fluke kind of retired because he had some back issues and things like that. Well, as of last fall, he'd started racing again. Now he's racing local cyclocross races, doing very well in them. Does that mean he's going to come back to race single speed? Hmm. Yeah, you'll know within the next... Uh Three month, days, month half, right? <laughs> four days. I, I would say right. there's Kohata and then yeah. Mohican. If you're not in by those, then, then probably not. Right. Correct. And, and, um, speaking of Mohican, um, Jerry Flug was the first person to win an NUE event overall on a single speed at Mohican. Really? So he, he's won it once at Mohican. Um, Barry Wicks has done it once at Lumberjack. And Gordon Wadsworth has done it once at Kohutta. So it'll be interesting to see how those guys do. And when you compare time to time with Jerry in his peak and Gordon in his peak, very similar times across those courses, even though the courses kind of change, um, very similar times. But, you know, there's lots of other people in that division that you can't discount. Um, uh, Mike Maltabano is always doing very well. Uh, Larrabee, who did really well at True Grit this year. Um, going back to Mike Baldobano, um, Gordon Wadsworth admitted that that was his big com- competition at Marathon Nationals in the past couple of years. I mean, he's the guy that Gordon kind of worries about because he never knows what kind of form Maltabano is going to show up with. Now, Mike is kind of trying to race himself into fitness, it seems like, because he's done the Pisgah stage race. And he's done a few other races. Um, including True Grit, but he did not have a real good ride at True Grit. So I, I still think in the single speed division in the NUE, uh, Gordon Wadsworth. That's my prediction yeah. for this year. Yeah. Yeah. If you had to pick one, I think you're right. Uh, what other ones? What else do you want to talk about? What other categories we got? Well, there's some, obviously some changes we talked about last show and Brenda Simmerl is not going to be chasing the, the NUE stuff this year, right? And yeah. so what do you think on the, the, the female race? Before True Grit, I had a clear-cut winner. Um, and that would have been Carla Williams. Now, Carla's been doing really well. I think I named one of our shows previously the Carla Williams show because she won a bunch of the races we highlighted in a single show. Um, Angela Parra, one of the Costa Rican team riders, though I don't think she's from Costa Rica, um, but she races for one of the Costa Rican teams that are seeming, seemingly to invade the NUE this year. One true grit. She Car- had a good lead out there too. She, so yeah, she did. She, I think she won by 15 13, minutes. minutes. Yeah, something, yeah, something like, that. like that. So it'll be, I, I'm not sure how many races those folks are going to do. And that, that, that probably has a big factor in it. But Carla Williams, I think if she's able to put together a full season now, um, she is a physician 
doing her residency, you know, and she's admitted to me that there's the calendar isn't as open and available to her as, you know, um, someone who would work a nine to five job. Um, she, you know, she's, she's kind of stuck to the calendar that's given to her for her schooling and her training. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see if she's able, able to put together a full, get the minimum four races. I think if she does put four races together, they're going to be all East coast races, ones that she can get to. Um, so you'll probably see her at, uh, you'll probably see her Kohada this weekend, Mohican, you know, the, the East coast Shenandoah fool's gold wilderness one oh one. So, I think she's the one to beat unless Angela Parra. Now, there's other racers out there. Christy Olson was the one that finished just behind Parra at True Grit. She was 13 minutes down over an eight-hour race. That's not that far. Marley Dixon has always done really well out of Colorado. And then there's a couple people that do really well when they choose to race the NUE races, but don't usually choose, don't have a yet to choose a full NUE season. And those would be People um, like uh, Pisgah Riders, Casey Armstrong, and Nina Otter, they've kind of dabbled in it. How, how many races again, Mark, do you got to do? So you've, there's 15 races in the NUE, and you have – it's your four best races. Four best races. Four okay. best races. So, I mean, you can do four and have the minimum, but if you have a bad race, then you kind of have to do a fifth. Is there um, a tie often that's coming at the end of the year? Because yes. Of, I mean, four is not very many races out of 15. No, and it's very often the case that, um, especially the mountain riders, that you'll never race the guys that are leading. They don't, you know what I mean? Like, you, you may, it's very possible that someone who comes down to the tie has won four races and never raced the another person that's won four yeah, that's races. Yeah, I was wondering, because you could, you could have the first and second place have never actually ever raced each other. The tie is at Fool's Gold, which is the last race of the NUE, and that's pretty much a winner-take-all. So the tie comes down to however many number of races you've won, and if you're tied, who did best at Fool's Gold. Okay. So that's that's how that goes. Well, what do you think about the men's, men's 100? I I will say last year, and I just think I remember this because I was joining the show around this time. It was it Jamie Lamb that did pretty well out at uh, Pierce Hole and then showed up at one or two races. Yes, southeast. Mm-hmm. Yep, and he did. I think he did fairly well at True Grit. Top he five. finished in the top ten at True yeah, Grit. I think 10, he was, yeah. was about thirty minutes off the lead. Okay, but it's it's early season too, you know, and he was down from. Calgary. So exactly. He's from Canada. So it's not like he's doing a lot of <laughs> outdoor training. Um, so I, I, I mean, I think he, I think he has potential to be top five. Yeah. I think the, the names on the top of the list, I'll name some here. Um, Ryan Serbel, um, who used to race for toast ahead is now moved over and now racing for rare disease cycling. I think he is a big favorite. Dylan Johnson, who I just mentioned in the previous episode, winning uh, six hours of Warrior Creek, has continued his march across <laughs> uh, mountain bike uh, endurance events here in the southeast. He won the Harbison 100K um, two weekends ago, and then the very next day turned around, drove seven hours or so, and raced the um, Curse of the Crab six-hour race and won that. Um, and he's putting I, we'll in, we'll see him at Kohada probably. Won't we? Yeah, we will. You will see him at Kohada. Now last year he did not do very well in the events. Cause I think he was still trying to figure out 
the pacing and the nutrition. He would often fade from the, often be in the league group, often be making moves in the league group, but fade in the final 15 miles or so. You know, he's still uh, top five overall in the series. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right. He's, he's still, he's still. He was and, on the podium twice. Yes. And he is, um, he is super young, uh, 22-ish, yeah. I think. Um, and then, Speaking of him, Scott Hoffner, who finished just a few minutes down on him at Warrior Creek, is targeting the NUE series this season. He previously had done a lot of cyclocross races in the fall, but I think he's more targeting the endurance racing, and so it'll be kind of interesting to see where he falls. Taylor Ledeen, of course, who won True Grit, well, you, can't, you can't not mention him, yeah. kind of came out of nowhere. I mean, he's the guy that finishes usually top five, but all of a sudden has this breakthrough effort at True Grit, I have, I have to say that he's probably a very big favorite. The two or three that I think could also fit in there, Josh Tostado doesn't all, I mean, he kind of has to do a lot of traveling if he's going to do the um, NUE because he's out in Colorado and uh, there's only like two races out that way. And so he's got to come east. And so he's got to put in some traveling. Last year he did Mohican. I think he did uh, Fool's Gold. Might have been the year before. Um, but he's, he's got to do traveling if he's going to be part yeah. of that. And then two people that... What about Kerry Smith? Kerry Smith is possible, but he's never done any races um, outside of the races that are in his backyard. Gotcha. Uh, he'll do he'll do Pierce Hole. He'll do True okay. Grit. Um, but he generally is not... You're not going to see him coming um, east and doing Shenandoah and things like that. The two people that I think you have to figure out what they're doing before you make a a final determination. Keck Baker, you know, he has said that he's um, going to concentrate more on 100K races, but if he, you know, you know he's going to do Shenandoah, you know he's going to do Wilderness because those are some of his favorite races. And so there's two. He only needs two more to finish the 100-mile, get the minimum 100-mile series in. You could compete in both, can't you? Yes, you could. You could As long as you did four in both, you could, you could do both. Um, so you could make it happen. Yeah, I mean, it's just like Gordon Wadsworth did yeah. Um, you know, a year ago or so, single speed, and single geared. speed and geared, right? Yeah. Um, and then the other person who hasn't been in the NUE in the past year or so, but has won the NUE, Jeremiah Bishop. You never know what wild hair he's going to get. He's always going to be at Shenandoah. He loves that race. It's one of his favorite races. He's pro- he's won it definitely more than anybody else. I think it's around ten times. Um, so you have to figure that he's. If he decides he wants to concentrate on the NUE, that's where he's going to be. Of course, he's dedicated and contracted with Topi Kurgan, racing a lot of stuff overseas, Cape Epic, and I things. thought he was been doing a lot of the international stuff. And he does, and he's and and Topi Kurgan always has a large presence at Leadville. You know, Jeremiah Bishop last year with the record-breaking performance that Lakata had at Leadville was mostly provided at the expense of Jeremiah Bishop pulling on some of those long gravel roads heading back into the mountains by himself, just pulling that group along um, and just, you know, throwing everything he had at trying to keep the speed high so that Alvin could then um, move off and, and get the record. So I, I'm not sure if Jeremiah, I've tried to talk to him and see what he, his plans are. And, you know, he, he's a professional. Um, the NUE isn't, isn't a big money making thing for professionals. There's usually not huge Paydays, um, especially considering the effort. So you never you never know what those guys will consider important and what they won't. Um, but those those are those are my top 
seven or eight. But if I had to pick it today, I would pick uh, Dylan Johnson because he's the guy on form right now. He's definitely the guy that um, is doing really well. Okay. Um, and the other category that uh, we didn't mention yet is Masters. Masters. And you had at True Grit uh, the best of the Masters field so far in the NUE. Now, the Masters is one of those categories that you really can't figure out because you never know who's going to all of a sudden time into Masters or someone who was a 49-year-old elite mountain biker that all of a sudden decides he turns 50, he's going to go race in the Masters of the NUE. There's always guys aging into the bracket and guys that maybe are starting to lose their form the longer they're in the bracket. Greg Golay, who has won the NUE before, did very well. Jeff Clayton, who last year at the end of the season I predicted to be the future of Masters races in the NUE, didn't do as well as I expected. David Jolin is always there, and you can't mention the Masters 50-plus without mentioning the the two-time champion Roger Massey, who... Didn't do as well as he expected in True, uh, True Grit, but he yeah. he does a lot of his training by com- on his commute. He rides to work and back from work. I think it's 25, 30 miles in each direction. And he does his intervals um, on those commutes back and forth. Well, Maryland had the worst winter in, I don't know, 100 years or something like that. Yeah, um, it's, and it's, it's pretty early in the and season. And it's really early in the season. And I think... One, I've seen Roger be extremely motivated, and I think he might take um, the, the little bit of what he would consider a, a not a great performance and um, use that as some motivation to get back up on on the top step of most of these races. So, uh, but it, it, the Masters in the past it hasn't always been as competitive, um, but now you know, True Grit, you had four or five guys all racing within. 20 minutes of each other for the majority of the race. So Yeah, and at True Grit, the, there was only seven seconds between first and second place. Right, yeah. And they, they actually came into a sprint, and um, uh, Jeff Clayton, I think, went off course as they came into like a turn or a chicane or something like that that allowed uh, the winner to squeak through. So, uh, But it, I think as the racing evolves and as, as we've really that, – that series has really – progress to where it is now, um, you're going to see all of the categories. There's not going to be a gimme in any of the categories. All the categories can be very, very, very competitive. Good stuff. So that's that's the NUE. Um, so my predictions, if I had to pick one in each one, I'm going to go with Dylan Johnson in the men's, Carla Williams in the women's, Wadsworth in the single speed, and Jeff Clayton in the masters. How's that? All right. It's recorded, there. Mark. It's locked in. We're locked in. Cool. Little fantasy NUE. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's get into some racing. All right. Well, we've got some race coverage uh, to go on. A little bit of everything. We truly have a little bit of everything. We've got a little bit of gravel. We got a little bit of stage racing. We got a little bit of um, marathon mountain bike racing. So and some endurance. Stuff. And some yeah, and some endurance stuff. So um, I'm, I'll start off with um, the Wachita Challenge. So. The Wachita Challenge, uh, lots of racers with hometown stretching across the Midwestern U.S., um, the majority from Missouri, Arkansas, northern Texas, Kansas, Oklahoma area, headed into the t- small town of Odin, Arkansas, for the Wachita Challenge, a 60-mile endurance mountain bike race on the trails, gravel roads, and dirt access roads of the Wachita National Forest. 
located about 50 miles west of Little Rock. The area has a growing mountain bike reputation and uses this weekend of racing with an accompanying set of more recreational rides to celebrate and illustrate its growing network of trails. The majority of the course is on sandy trail with sections of much more technical rocky single track that even occasionally is best served by hiking rather than attempting to ride it. The trails to gravel was split up nearly 50-50 for the course with the initial rollout and final stretch being on that same section of gravel about five miles from that start-finish line. In the men's race, it was long in the early miles as the accelerations and surges on the early rollers as the leaders were getting help from a few choke points in the entry to the first bits of single track began to whittle the front down very quickly. Onto the first big climb up Brushy Creek Mountain, a climb that kept the top three very close but definitely separated themselves from the those behind just 10 to 12 miles into the race. By the time the three leaders had reached the early slopes of the day's next big climb up Blowout Mountain, Brandon Millot had soon found powering away solo from the front as the trail climbed. Behind him, Micah Gordon put in a sustained pace to keep the gap manageable, though through the mid-slopes, but would lose nearly four minutes on that climb alone. Soon, Micah Gordon had Todd Gerhardt yo-yoing from the effort and would continue to do so for many miles through the middle of the race, with each Gordon and Gerhardt capitalizing on their strengths before the others would find an extra gear to bring their competitor back, seemingly staying within shouting distance of each other for the better part of three hours or more. Over the last big climb of the day, and the race appeared to be Melotts, with a gap of six minutes over Maudlin Mountain, and he was climbing very strongly, according to bystanders. Behind the duo, the seconds of each other was approaching the same climb, having spent nearly 14 miles of relatively flat gravel road chasing in a duo time trial mode. Up front, Brandon Melotte would add time to the gap behind on his chasers at every checkpoint and through the last checkpoint had nearly seven minutes on the duo. Brandon Malott would take the win in four hours, 31 minutes and 50 seconds. And behind him, Kansas City Bicycle Club's Micah Gordon, with familiarity of the course, put his head down into the remaining five miles of gravel that gapped off Gerhardt in the short rollers in the very final miles to pull into the finish. Second place, eight and a half minutes down to Malott with Todd Gerhardt of Bicycle Plus Racing, less than one minute further back. In the women's race, Jessica Smith would take a similar tactic in the women's race, using the climbs and sliding in further up the groups than her competitors to nearly be out of sight, out of mind. With her competitors now knowing exactly what the deficits were, nor did they know what their placings were mixed in among the other categories, Smith would seemingly use the climbing to build on the gaps behind and handle the technical terrain quite a bit better than the others in the women's field to win in 5 hours and 41 minutes and change in a very deep women's field that had four women under six hours and the top three all finishing within 14 minutes of each other. Second place would go to Laureen Kofelt, just eight minutes down, and Desiree White, an additional seven minutes back. Remarkable performance by the second and place second and third place riders, who were both racing above the age of 45, and Desiree's case, above the age of 50. In the single speed race, just halfway up the first climb of Brushy Creek Mountain, and it was apparent there was a clear-cut speed difference early on. But the question was whether the remarkable speed of Eric Lehman had something that would bring a dismal end to his race 
far before the finish line, or if he did have the form to be racing on the very climb and technical course, slotted in among the top 10 overall. As the race wore on, it became much more evident that this was the real deal, with time gaps through the midway point approaching 15 minutes, and by the finish, with a time of 5 hours and 5 minutes, Eric Lehman crushes the single-speed field. Behind him, with much much of the day, a little back and forth between Jacob Haba and Chris Rogers would eventually form out a second step of the podium for Rogers, who would get the last word on the battle but finish nearly 25 minutes down on the winner. Haba would finish in third, just five minutes further back on Rogers. And so that was the Wachita Challenge, Arkansas's early racing. Yeah, you know, I've uh, I've seen that race on the calendar. I was kind of interested in that one uh, because I, well, from, from Minnesota, it's a, it's a day's drive down there. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I, I was lucky enough to talk to Micah shortly after the race and it's, it is not an easy course. And of course, Arkansas, there's several parts of Arkansas that's got, that have some um, unique mountain bike trails that are rather famous or infamous, depending on your perspective for just some big, rocky, nearly unrideable, unpleasant kind of mountain biking. Been there, but. Uh, I'm trying to, one of our spring break trips or something, I want to plan a trip down there because there's a ton of riding down there. There is, there is. And there's, there, I mean, if you look at, um, if you look at a map, cause I was trying to figure out exactly, um, what parts of the forest they were in and things like that. Um, if you look at a map, I mean, the, the national forests down there just extend for hundreds yeah. of thousands of acres, just huge, huge areas. Um, Okay. And Steve, I think you have uh Barry Roubaix. How did the uh, how did the men's and women's fare there? It's often some fast racing. Yes, this was definitely a fast race. It was a sixty two mile race, so hundred K gravel race. And I'm gonna jump into the women's race first, where I have a lot of the coverage at. Mm-hmm. Uh and then I'll touch real quick on uh how the men finished up. The uh uh, the women started off with, uh, right off the gun, Rachel Langdon fighting for a position in the front group of Masters Men racers, where there was a lot of fighting for position prior to hitting the first section of gravel. Uh, it was really dry out there, too. And, and uh, the pack hit what is known as the Three Sisters Climbs and started to break apart. Langdon went on the attack and started making passes up the climbs, gaining positions in the overall field prior to hitting a section of double track. The double track was dry and sandy uh, from the lack of rain where Langdon had to dismount at one point to avoid riders going down in front of her in the soft sand, but was able to jump back on her bike and catch up with the group ahead. Rachel Langdon now found herself at the tail end of a speeding pace line that kicked it up another notch down a couple sections of connecting roads, while Christine Thornburg, Mary Penta, and Kelsey Devereaux were behind in chase groups. Around mile 30, another eight group of men riders came up from behind to join the lead pack that had pulled back on the pace a little bit. The heavy attacks started coming again around mile 45, and the pace was dialing up. Men racers were getting spit off the back of the group, and Rachel Langdon hung on until the pack hit mile 52 when the elastic finally snapped, dropping her from the pack. No doubt some impressive racing. Rachel Langdon would report that the last 10 miles was the toughest mental barrier she has pushed herself through as her legs were screaming from the last 50 miles of racing. Not wanting to get swallowed up by the chase groups, Langdon traded poles with Tyler Kooning, who had also dropped off the main pack, but was still hammering the pedals to the finish. Rachel Langdon of Clarksville's Schwinn Infinite left 
everything she had on the final climb, coming to the finish with her dirt in her teeth, lungs, nose, and ears to take the win in three hours and eight minutes. With Christine Thornburg of Cement Racing coming through the finish in second place in three hours and 15 minutes, and Mary Penta of Women's Project Pedal finished third in three hours and 19 minutes. Kind of give you an idea of that finish. That three hours and eight minutes finish for Rachel, the winning men's race was two hours and 54 minutes, uh, only 14 minutes faster. And then the men's finish was, if you look at like the top 10 results, they were in like a tenth of a second of one another. So it's complete photo finish pack racing to the finish for the men's. And that race is right at 100K, right? Give or take. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 62 miles. Yeah, that, that race is huge. <laughs> um, the number of people and participants and things like that. That's, that's a big event. Um, yeah, it, it looked like a big event. And that's, uh, it, the, this, the gravel racing is, is pretty interesting. I think it started out, you know, with kind of a adventure kind of grassroots type thing, but it's, it's become, it's a complete clash of, uh, full on road racers and mountain bikers. Yep. Yep. And with a few cyclocross guys scattered in yeah. amongst them. So, um, heading down into North Carolina, um, for what I would say is one of the top four solo stage races in the world, um, as far as mountain biking goes and off-road racing, um, for the Oscar Blues Pisgah stage race. Pisgah stage race now in its second year of its newish uh, position in the spring months um, and the early season when it had previously most of the, uh, for most of its existence kind of existed in the fall kind of end of season months, but it brought out a large gaggle of racers looking to race early race, technical and race pristine Pisgah terrain. The race continues to grow through grassroots promotions and through word of mouth and those who have experienced it, with many saying it's their favorite race of the year, stage race or otherwise. The race takes place um, in Pisgah Forest. Um, it runs the gamut of the types of trails that Pisgah provides. Mountain biking in its purest form, Rudy Rocky Train, that has made Pisgah famous on the menu every day, in addition to double track fire roads, gravel, and even an occasional bit of pavement. The race now exists as a five-day stage race, all centered around the town of Brevard, North Carolina, in the Pisgah National Forest. The race would include approximately uh, two to two and a half hours of racing for the winners on each stage, with some racers taking as much as twice that to complete the distances. The total distance for the race was 140 miles. Iconic stages for the event included the now-famous Looking Glass Loop, the Promised Land Loop, uh, White Squirrel Loop, the Carl Schenk Loop, and the infamous Land of Waterfalls route, with every stage ending on the proverbial classic Pisgah Downhill Trail, Black Mountain, into the finish area. Solo categories included open men's, open women's, single speed, 40 plus, and 50 plus master divisions. Although there were duo categories um, similar to the more Euro-style duo race uh, format, with teams of two required to stay close to each other on the course and through the finish area, with those categories being in the co-ed duo and the open men's races. With six different countries represented and over 10 different states in the, from the United States, it was a who's who of endurance racing across the start list, including Chris Trees, Tristan Cowie, Carrie Werner, Mike Maltabano, 
Evan Plews, Emily Shields, Justin J. Puck, Puck Rivka, uh, Sue Haywood, Heidi Rents, and Josh Whitmore. Additionally, making their presence felt in the race, but racing in the less traditional duo category, Gordon Wadsworth, Elizabeth Sampy, and Liam Brenda Simrel, all racing duo, but for sure adding speed to the group in many aspects through technical riding as well as overall form and fitness. In the single speed division, after an initial scare from Mike Maltabano in the opening two stages, Evan Plews, who has not always had the best of luck at the event with mechanicals and injuries in past years, and is coming back from a recent big leg injury over the late fall and winter months, showed resilience in putting down consistent finishes over the five days that left Maltabano trying to figure out a strategy to keep Plews close. But Plew's performance in stages three, four, and five had Monty bleeding time after the first two stages had placed him within just minutes of Plew's and had Plew's impressed with the tenacity of Multibano in fighting back on some very tough courses. In the women's open division, Bryna Blanchard of Wyndham Mountain Outfitters put her foot down with some authority, surprising many on the first stage, taking the the win with authority with only Christine Putnam able to keep it close. Three minutes close, in fact, at the end. But Blanchard would never look back, winning every stage convincingly, except the last one in which she would finish third on the day, but well inside the needed time as she would convincingly win the GC by over 45 minutes after the five days by gaining an average of 12 minutes per day on the four days she did win. Pro cyclocross racer and Stan's No Tubes elite rider Emily Shields would finish 50 minutes down with consistent performances on all days, putting her in the top three of all racers in those categories. Third place to Heidi Rents of the Cyclist Menu out of Colorado, getting a great taste of Pisgah racing and keeping it close with a back and forth all week to Emily Shields. And with Shields' win on the very last day, she was able to squeak out the second step on the podium by a mere seven minutes after Renz had taken that position from her on stage four. Truly incredible racing that was by far closer than the event and ridiculously close separation of just seven minutes that would account for that final GC tally. Um, on a side note in the women's field, finishing up in the duo category with a time faster than the women's overall winner was Elizabeth Sampy and finishing just Two minutes behind the final winner in the GC was the team of Brenda and Lee Simmerl. It's kind of a cool little thing to analyze the what ifs, the yeah. with so many variables like that that are out there. Um, could it have been different if Sampy and Simmerl had been racing in the solos to the potential benefit of pacemaking with their duo partners or potentially the abilities to go faster had they not had their duo partners? Uh, it makes for a fun consideration in the end. Um, it didn't really matter as Blanchard uh, was more than a deserving winner, uh, but does leave us with a kind of a what if. Um, again, that's not to minimize the stellar performance of Blanchard for all intents and purposes. She dominated front to back and likely may have done the same, even if she'd raced all comers anyway. In the Masters 40 plus mass, uh, division, a name we've mentioned here quite a bit, especially recently and likely one um that if we were doing a road racing podcast would also be getting them mention. Um, Josh Whitmore of Organic Valley Racing and a CTS coach continues to make an appearance here on the podcast racing out of Western North Carolina. Whitmore would slot himself in among the leaders each day, finishing just minutes back and more than holding his own, finishing all days in the top six overall and often further up the order than that. 
Whitmore showed his prowess on the technical single track that he trains on regularly, and despite being not built as a nimble climber, more than held his own on the ups, often outpowering riders with much less body mass on the eccentric uh, Pisgah uphills. Behind Whitmore, a three-way battle for the rest of the podium developed with J-Pock, Justin Pavrivka out of Pro uh, Mountain Outfitters of Pittsburgh, outlasting or perhaps out-recovering Quebec Steve Tremblay by less than seven minutes after over 14 hours of racing combined. In the men's open race, man, what a race. Kerry Werner was on hand, pro cyclocross racer, and more than capable pro mountain biker as well, and the 2013 Pisgah Stage Race winner, returning to one of his favorite trail systems in the Pisgah National Forest to take on everybody who would have him. But as mentioned, there were others on hand who, with their pedigree, had much different plans in mind for Mr. Werner than giving him the top step. The racing showed its uh, terrific face right out of the gun on the first stage, on the first climb, just 30 minutes into this five-day stage race, when Tristan Cowie separated himself from the group with Werner in tow. Side by side, they raced, each never giving an inch, and over the line they rolled, separated by less than a second with Werner, the early winner of the stage, getting the Red Leader's jersey. Behind the dynamic duo up front, only Chris Trees could keep it manageable, finishing just five minutes down and losing much of that time on that first climb of the day. Stage two would be nearly exactly the same with the top two keeping an eye on each other, tempo and surges that gapped all all the others behind them. Long road ride out to the single track proper and on the exquisitely rooty uh, squirrel gap route, finally driving that wedge between themselves and the others on the turkey pen eroded climb. Across the line, separated by just three seconds today, Cowie, using local knowledge in the final lines of the descent, would take the win and take the jersey now with just two se- seconds separating the top two. Again, Chris Trees would keep it manageable, finishing just 15 minutes behind the top two. On to stage three. The queen stage of the Pisgah stage race with five major climbs on the cards, 30 miles, 5,000 feet of climbing. Again, cream of the race, Cowie and Werner separated themselves early from the pack. And as the racing hit the notorious Black Mountain climb and the Rudy eroded trail turned more than a little bit technical, Werner found himself with a gap and capitalized it. Out of sight, out of mind for Werner, who would roll through out of sight indeed on Cowie, who had finished three minutes down on the day and gained that red jersey back onto Werner's shoulders. Stage four left the racers at equilibrium. Cowie and Werner rolled in together after both put pressure on each other on the climbs, and Cowie pushed the descents with his local knowledge and line acumen that left Werner on edge, but inching up his comfort zone perhaps a little higher. No changes in the overall, except that Charles Snyder of Starlight Apparel, now in third after an absolutely disastrous day from Chris Trees that we'll get into in just a second. Stage five and a big climb right from the gun to allow the racers to run the infamous Farlow Gap downhill. Coconut sized loose boulders with no specific line in sight. You would think with a downhill, the length and technicality of Farlow Gap, it would create a separation someone could take advantage of. Uh, but no, Werner kept Cowie close, letting him lead the more sketchy downhills and staying on his wheel to 
to keep those times close on the day. In the end, the two would again finish wheel to wheel with Cowie taking the last stage, but Werner capitalizing on that two and a half minute gain from stage three that truly decided the race. So in the overall men's, Carrie Werner of Ken's Bike Shop in first, Tristan Cowie of Sycamore Cycles in second, and Charles Snyder of Starlight Apparel in third on the final GC of the week in the open men's division of the Oscar Blues Pisgah stage race for 2016. Um, in an award for the most resilient racer for 2016, and every year this race provides all those amazing stories of riders riding into town, changing a derailleur, riding back out, completing the course. Um, uh, Chris Trees, like yeah, Chris Trees, who did everything from race with a broken chain ring that included walking, running much of the course to finish nearly four hours down on the leaders on stage four. He also on stage two had to borrow an aid station worker's bike in order to finish the stage after he destroyed a front wheel and still managed to finish in third overall. Um, Chris is one hell of a competitor and one I had expected to be vying for the top of the podium. Pisgah has its moments. And if you race there more than just a little bit, you'll likely have your great and dark days too. So big props to Chris Trees who I'm sure came into the race with big plans and expectations, but hung in there even when the going got more than a little bit tough um, than could have ever been expected or predicted. So um, lots of amazing racing there. It's a race. Again, it's one of those races that I said, I want to do, I want to do, I want to do. And then I just never get there. Um, there there's so many races out there like that. Um that area, every time I go out to Western North Carolina, I, I spend at least a day getting lost in the Pisgah National Forest. Um, it's, uh, and it's a little bit of everything. Race lists, yeah. I, there's enough races to keep you busy for the next 20 years. Oh, yeah. And Pisgah, Pisgah is, I mean, there are more that, there are plenty of people, um, including a, a couple of racers this year that went out and did the race and started making plans to move there. Um, it's that magical for mountain biking. Um, it's amazing. I mean, you want flowy trails. It's there. You want gravel climbs. It's there. You want absolutely menacing, um, boulder strewn downhills. It's there. You want, um, terrain that world cup downhillers train on that's there too. So, I mean, it's just, it's a little bit of everything and truly is, endless miles of trails that if you don't have a map, you could seriously end up on the wrong side of a mountain when it got dark. So, yeah. Well, I'll have yeah. to let my wife know we're moving there. Yeah. I would, I would, I would love <laughs> I, to be able to do it. If I didn't have yeah. a nice, comfortable job here in North Carolina, uh, in central North Carolina, I would definitely be there. So, so, um, so we, we, you had been speaking earlier about Brandon Malott. I'm um, yes. doing very well at the Wachita Challenge, seemed to leave everybody in his wake. But you'd mentioned that he'd done well at Rattler. What can you tell me about that? Yeah, let's, uh, I'll dive into the, the Rattler. The, uh, now this is the, one of the qualifying races for Leadville. Okay. Okay. So this is like a 100K race. Mm -hmm. Sam Delonzi quickly worked his way through the racers to get to the front of the race before Brandon Malott put in an early attack on the first set of gravel roads. 
Sam Delonzi and Dave Weens answered the attack and reeled Malat back in. But the early attack resulted in a breakup of the lead pack to less than 15 racers. Sam Delonzi pushed the pace at the front in an effort to string out the lead group and then single track later in the lap brought the lead group down to six racers at the front. Working together and racing wheel to wheel through the rest of the first lap and well into the second. Brandon Malat was fast through the wooded single track, stringing out the remaining six. Malat, Weens, and Delonzi would take turns pushing the pace and exchanging attacks that would separate them off the front before closing out lap two. Dave Weens took control of the race, putting in a hard attack to start the final lap through the first single track. Brandon Malat was on the rivet, but hung on while Sam Delonzi dropped their wheel when he stopped to pick up his bottle after dropping it during the hand up. Delonzi was on the hammer to catch back up, but reported that the short stop was just enough to let some fatigue set in and couldn't reconnect with Weens while Weens was on the hammer with Malat on his tail. Soon after, Weens and Malat hit lap traffic, and Malat would report that he was just hanging on as Weens kept the pace high. The race intensity continued to increase into the last three miles, while lap traffic also increased. At one point, Brandon Malat ended up wrecking with a lap traffic rider while chasing Weens during the pass getting separated from the lead now and resulting in a cut-up knee. Weens would actually soft-pedal, giving Malat a chance to get back on his bike and race Weens for the finish. From that point on, the two duked it out to the finish, with Dave Weens getting a good jump on one of the last climbs, turning the last five minutes into an all-out drag race to the finish with both racers, leaving everything out on the trail. Dave Weens of Topeka Ergon crossed the finish line in first place at 3 hours, 47 minutes, and 9 seconds, with Brandon Malad of Charlie's Bike Lab chasing in second place at 3 hours, 47 minutes, and 19 seconds, and Sam Delonzi from Honeystinger Bontrager finishing a few minutes back in third place at 3 hours and 51 minutes and 16 seconds. But it sounded like some pretty good racing. That sounds like some tight racing, and yeah, it, it, it's even more remarkable. What is Dave Weens now? Yeah, 50, yeah. 51, 50, 50, 51, I, something I like that. I think he's in his fifties. Yeah. I mean, some of his, uh, uh, I mean, how many times has he won Leadville now? Right. And, uh, yeah, that's, uh, he, I mean, and, and he's not, it's not like he's winning it on endurance alone. He's winning it by accelerating. And so that, you know, there, you can't, you can't go by the old, you, right. You can't go by the old adage that, well, you know, you got to use a diesel engine when you get older. I mean, he's, He's thrown down with the youngest. I mean, Brand- Brandon is throw down he is relatively attacks. young. I think Brandon's mid twenties. So um, that's that's some impressive racing. Yeah, um, Dave, Dave Weens is also known too as uh, the year that Lance Armstrong did the Leadville. Right, Weens is the one. Right, one Leadville that year as well. Yep, that is true. That is true. Um, so I, I have one more race. You, you, that's all the races you have. Um, I that's think. the coverage I've got for Rattler. Yeah. Right. Yep. Um, uh, I have one more race, an endurance race out of Lawrence, Kansas, the Gravel Years Raid. It's one of those events that was barely a grassroots event when it was first announced last year. It's an event I actually covered last year, but it's one of the favorites for that central U.S. region, due in part, obviously, to the obviously increasing popularity of gravel racing, but also due to its length, as it is 100 miles. So definitely on the longer side of the endurance gravel racing thing. Um, truly a test for early season endurance athletes um, and has proven to have a fair share of both road and mountain bikers competing for the front of the pack. 
Not one for the meek, with often colder expected temperatures, brisk and constant winds, and more than a few road race junkies throwing down in the early season after plenty of trainer time indoors over the winter. It includes a decent amount of flat roads with wide open spaces where wind is always a factor in the spring months there in Kansas, and it's raced on a bit of pavement and more than a little bit of all different types of gravel. Additionally, there are portions of the race with some moderate amounts of hills that can separate and provide the opportunities for tactics outside of the echelons and guttering riders in the wind. 250 riders towed the line, and I think that's because that was a race cap, and 30-degree temperatures for the start with wind howling at 25 miles an hour onto their race kits. Um, straight out of the Lawrence, Kansas start rolled a fast-moving pack that quickly separated the chaff from the elite with a select group of riders numbering in the low 20s of the 250-plus riders who started. As the race moved along the f- uh, flat levee path to a climb up the steep hills bordering the Kansas River, a two-man break with Brian Jensen and Ashton Lamb riding away from the front of the field and soon after having a three-man loose group attempting to bridge back up. Soon others were chasing back on from behind that swelled the front group to nearly 10 riders, but that only briefly looked cohesive. Brian Jensen, a former winner of Dirty Kanza, quickly went to work, whittling the field down that became less cohesive as the weaker riders showed themselves in their efforts into the wind and on the rollers as they were encountered. Riders started popping off the back of the Steve Tilford and Brian Jensen-led group faster than cease and desist letters from the Brant Sorensen supposed legal department. And then there were two. Tilford and Jensen, Tradewind Energy teammates who went 1-2 last year in the same event, did the two-man time trial into the wind, finally getting a decent tailwind for a little bit of a respite before heading back down the and toward Lawrence, Kansas, and the final miles over those same levee paths they had started on. At the line, it was Jensen with the win, repeating last year's victory in 5 hours, 12 minutes, with Tilford right there just a second back. It would be nearly 23 minutes before Cody Jones of Big D Cycling would cross the line, chasing Solo for much of the last 20 miles into the 25 to 30 mile headwind and catching Ashton Lamb in the final miles to take third, with Lamb in fourth. Nice. Man, uh, Tilford's another one of those. He's like, he's like in his late 50s. Yeah, and he doesn't, he doesn't race, um, just long endurance events. I mean, he races, he does a lot of crit racing. He crushed the Lutes in 99er last year. Did he really? Yeah. Just, yeah. I think I remember it was like a 15 minute lead or something. I mean, he's like five hours and 30 some minutes or something like that. Yeah. He's, he has been around for a long time. Um, and he still hangs like up to uh the Schwamagon forty, which is I mean, you know, that's a two hour race over forty miles of mm-hmm. ski trails. Yeah. And he's in the top ten on that, like throwing down with all the young guys. Yeah. Yeah. He's um he still races the uh on the roadside, the NRC, the you know, the national racing calendar, doing all the crits and things like that. He's a very, very good crit racer. Um I I think he'll even admit that he's not a great like road racer in the traditional sense of climbing and things, but um, he's very, very good at crit racing. And of course that translates pretty well to uh, mountain biking and things like that were constant reaccelerations and yeah. things like that. So, uh, but that race there, I mean, this, 
I covered it last year. It's almost a mirror of last year's a, a event, um, in at least the way it played out. Uh, but it seems to be a, a, a big event that's, it's almost outgrowing itself in that it's still kind of run grassroots style, but has the popularity of much bigger, m- much more produced races. Um, if I remember correctly, I think the race starts in front of a bar. Like literally in front of a bar that's like on the on the uh, edge of the levees there. So okay, uh, but uh, it's a pretty cool race. Um, definitely, definitely early season for those guys though. Um, so that that's all the racing we had. I wanted to bring up something before uh, we kind of wrap this show up and just kind of a discussion. Um, you're kind of new to this, but you've done enough endurance racing that you kind of know what you want, what you don't like, what you. Um, and, and some of our listeners may be getting their feet wet, um, or maybe they're guys that are kind of veteran racers, um, doing the endurance thing. Maybe you're always curious what other people, um, do in these situations. And I wanted to talk about drop bags. Yeah. So for those of you who haven't done an endurance race yet, so drop bags are like kind of personal, generally they're gallon Ziploc bags. You can pack as much stuff in it as you'll want. And they'll take out to the aid stations. Usually they let you take, you know, one bag out to two or three aid stations spaced, you know, across the course. Yeah, it depends on the race. It depends on the race. How many, you know, if it's a lap I've race, seen some, like that. too, where, like, people have actually packed, like, like a little mini cooler. Right. Too. Yeah. It just, just, it depends, just depends. On race, it depends on the race. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so what I was interested in is finding out, Steve, you've done some that you've had drop bags for what, what yeah. have you, what have you packed in yours? Uh, yeah. And I was thinking maybe it starts good with, I'll, let me say what I pack on my bike with me. Okay. And then it, and it kind of translates over to like, okay, sure. so what is the backup gear right. in the drop bag? Cause I see drop bags for two things. One is, you know, your own nutrition that you don't want to carry the whole race. Yeah. And then secondly, it's for spare parts. But so typically in my hydration pack, I'm carrying at least one spare tube. Depending on the race, I'll carry two. Um, so like Lutz and 99er, I just carried one tube. But for True Grid, I carried two tubes. And Matahe, I carried two tubes. Uh, I'll even carry, I'll throw a patch kit in, uh, a hand pump, depending again on the race, something more remote or more rugged. I'll carry the hand pump if it's, you know, like, uh, the Lutzen or something, a couple air cartridges and, uh, uh, power locks for my chain, uh, multi-tool. I always carry a spare derailleur hanger and it might just be the design of my bike. But if I lay my bike down on the right side, I'm almost guaranteed my derailleur hanger is going to bend. <laughs> I, it's happened. I can't tell me how many I go through them like candy. Um, Zip ties, electrical tape, and uh, on a super long race or something, I've actually carried a spare pair of socks, um, just depending on what it is. So then when I get to my – when I go into my drop bags, like the first common thing for my drop bags is more tubes, right? So if I come into an aid station and I've used up a tube because I you know, got a flat tire or something, then I can replace the tube that I used, grab another spare tube out of my drop bag. Uh, but sometimes I'll have another spare pair of socks, spare gloves. Um, I've even packed a spare pair of brake pads before. I did this at the Mata Hay race because I just, I kind of didn't, didn't know uh-huh. what to, what to do. So 
I think at the 50 mile or the 75 mile, I threw an extra spare brake pads in. And, uh, I, I, at Mata Hay, I was like afraid I was in over my head and I got nervous and I like threw everything in my drop bags and then I didn't use it. I, I, didn't, I honestly actually didn't even use almost anything in my drop bags, but I had it in case I needed it. Right. What's funny is, is that everyone's laughs like, yeah, why would you, have, why would you put that in there? Why would you put, you know, brake parts? Um, but there actually have been races. Um, there have been races in the NUE that have actually been canceled because um, it rained while the race was going on. And um, Fool's Gold is is one of those. And the the Fool's Gold, that mud got into the brake pads and it just wore the, the brake pads off. So yeah. they, they actually ended up having to shut the course down, you know, at the halfway point because no one had brakes anymore. Um, and so it's interesting. It's interesting. Like you're like, "Eh, why would you take brake pads? And they're like, well, now they think about it. Yeah. Tossed them in. Yeah. Um, sometimes I'll throw, uh, I say sometimes. So I, I've done four long distance races, right. And two of them were the same race, the 99 or the other was true grit and, uh, Mata Hay. So I'm kind of going through more of my more extreme race and the Mata Hay stuff. But like I threw some stands in, uh, chain loop in my halfway point drop bag. Yeah. It was kind of handy. You know, a lot of times the, the aid stations might have it, yeah. but if you got a drop bag, you just, you know, toss it in. Um, but those are some of the, the common things that I'll, I'll throw in, uh, my drop bag. Um, what about you? Uh, I, well, first of all, I don't, a lot of the stuff that you mentioned you have, I, I kind of just, I just have, I have it redistributed in, the, in where I have it. Um, yeah. so like chain links, um, I actually have that taped to the underside of my saddle. I have two of them taped under there um, with, uh, they call it helicopter tape. It's like, it, it won't come off unless you want it to come off kind of thing. Um, okay. And it's just taped under there. Um, I've seen the interesting people put it, you know, wrap it on a handlebar with electrical tape or whatever. Yeah. Um, I don't use uh, hydration packs. I just don't like it. I don't like the feel of it. I like the freedom. That I, I just don't like having a, something yeah. on my back. Now I'm that's actually... For racing. Now, if I'm, I'm going on it, to be honest yeah. with you, I'm actually, I'm kind of trying to figure out if I can get away with the hydration packs myself, just because it's, it's a lot to carry on the right. back. That's just for, for racing. Right. Now I do do backcountry rides and, and I'll, I'll load. I have a really nice, um, uh, ergon bag, um, that you could, you could pack a living room in it, um, <laughs> that I, uh, that I'll use for like long, but I don't like racing in it. Yeah. Um, I just use water bottles. And with that said is, um, I'll often send, um, I, I use carbo rocket almost exclusively for hundred mile races and usually don't have any solid food, um, unless it's like some type of comfort food. Um, so I almost use exclusively carbo rocket for my nutrition. Um, it's 333 calories per bottle. I try to put down a, a bottle an hour, um, in addition to some additional water. Okay. Um, but what I do is I'll send an, uh, empty bottle with just carbo rocket in it, no water, just the powder mix in it to the, so when I get there, I can fill it. And that's not to say, I mean, um, Brad keys who developed carbo rocket has said, you know, you can, you can fill those bottles up and keep them for 24 hours. So you could actually send that, you know, they usually take the drop bags a day before, but I have found that it does change the taste. It's more consistently consistency thing for me. Kind of makes it a little bit chalky, a little bit pasty. 
Um, so I just, it doesn't take any time. I have the powder already. When I get there, I just open it up and have them fill it with water. It's usually cold water. Um, and that really helps, um, for me. Um, as far as food goes, I usually don't take that much food with me. If I do, it's a couple of gels or, um, a couple like blocks, like gel blocks that I'll okay. keep in my Jersey, but I, I don't use a lot of food. I'm still working out the nutrition thing, man. I, yeah, I, I that often will send comfort food to like the last aid station, which would be like home baked chocolate chip cookie or oh. you know, just something that it kind of helps with not only the you know getting a little bit of sugar in your system, but also it's a little bit psychological, you yeah. know, because if you're having a bad point there. And sometimes a chocolate cookie can really brighten your day. You can race to the last <laughs> exactly. aid station for your cookie, right? Um, I, I yeah, don't, like, I'm not quitting. I'm yeah. getting to my cookie. <laughs> I don't, I just don't use a lot of the, um, pre, um, packaged like power bar, cliff bar, that kind of stuff. I just, I don't know. I, I just, have in the past and I'm trying to get off of that stuff. Yeah. It's just, it's to, to me, food and- um, it, to me, it's just, um, I don't, it, it, I don't feel like it, my body absorbs it very well. Um, I get a lot of gastric upset if I try to eat it too quick. Um, I feel like sometimes like, there's a little bit of studies out there that says it'll dehydrate you because all the, that sugar kind of slows gastric absorption and things. But um, I just I just try to stay away from that. Um, Carbo Rocket has that a lot of the same stuff in it, but it doesn't have all the gel and sometimes that the sugar stuff is just way too sweet for me. And sometimes I've the Carbo Rocket gels in the past. Yeah, and sometimes the Carbo Rocket I'll only mix it two thirds strength just because it sometimes that stuff's a little sweet for me too. But um, to get where I wanted to, I, I kind of, um, I, I really had to force myself to go, uh, in a hole and see what was, what was best for getting me out. Um, as far as tools and stuff go, um, I often will send tubes up the, you know, up to the future aid stations and stuff. I usually carry, um, two with me. Um, and I also carry like a boot, um, in case I would rip a tire, um, I'll carry, um, maybe even, um, one of those little mini bottles of sealant, um, and usually cartridges. And, um, I'll often have a, like a small mini pump, um, for races that I think I'm going to have flat that have a much higher potential for flat tires. Something that I know that if I have flat tires, I'm going to probably go through my cartridges and I'm going to have to go to the pump. Do you, you uh, carry the stuff in your Jersey then? Um, the, Pump I would usually put on my on my bike. Um, I have a little pouch um, that I I can't remember even what vendor I got it from that fits. It holds uh, three cartridges and a and the inflator, and okay. it holds uh, my little toolkit and then the boot and all that stuff all in one thing. I've got a little tiny mini tool. The one thing I don't carry because I haven't found one that really works really well is some type of chain tool. I've never found one that fits small that I think works well. I like it's I've like the one mini in my multi-tool. Yeah. Um, it's not the lightest multi-tool. However, right. it's, it's, uh, one from Topeak, but it's got every single thing on it that I need. It's got the tire levers, the yeah. chain tool, all the, and it's actually, it's fairly compact. Huh. Um, I have to, maybe I can send you a link to the one I've got. It's actually cool. a fairly, um, you know, honestly, I've, I've been, I've been trying to experiment. Like now I've, I use, um, these, the Velcro straps, um, to hold the tubes onto the bike. I, I try and I try to minimize what I have 
in my jersey. I don't like a lot of stuff in my jersey. I mean, it's probably also the reason I don't like hydration packs. Um, I just yeah. like bottles, um, which has actually become a little bit problematic with my new frame, which is a full suspension bike because... Yep, uh, that's where I'm at. Um, Very it, few of them hold two bottles. Yep, and the the bottle that my one frame does hold, is it won't hold a large bottle. It'll only hold like your standard size whatever that is, 16 ounce, 18 ounce bottle. Um, yeah. and then the, you know, I, I've got a behind a seat post mount. Um, but I've found that no matter how high I mount that, I still will clip the bottle with the tire on a, you know, on something really compressing. So, um, I'm still working through that, uh, with the new, with the new full suspension bike. I'm still trying to figure out where I'm going to mount water. Yeah. That's, I, so my bike can only hold one water that's bottle, interesting. and yeah, that, that's yeah. that's the problem with the full of many of the full suspension yeah. bikes. There is some out there that hold two bottles. I mean, I, I'm pretty simple as far as the as far as what I send to drop bags. I send the um, I send tubes up the road if it's going to be something that I'm, I'm expecting a lot of flat tires. Um, I send bottles with just drink mix in it, so I can fill them with water when I get to whatever aid you know aid stations there. I'll have them fill them up with water. Doesn't yeah. take hardly any time. Um, and then often at the last, you know, the, the deep, deeper into the course, uh, aid stations, I'll often send comfort food, you know, something, yeah. you know, cookie or, um, maybe some type of, you know, Danish or something like that. Just real food, real food that satisfies kind of. Danish. Oh, who knows, man? Like, like you sit on on the side of the trail. Cupcake. Like, I don't out. know. I don't know. I'm just trying to think of something I would, something I'd pick up at a bakery. How about that? You know, just uh, regular yeah. food. Um, and I, it's not like I eat that. And I don't eat that stuff all the time. I just sometimes at that point when you're that low, man, that's like the best thing ever. Yeah. Oh that's yeah. The best I, thing ever. Yeah, I've eaten all kinds of crazy stuff. I uh, at the Mata Hay, my my wife actually made me um, rice krispie treats, like wrapped them in wax paper. Yeah. I those were good for like just some real. Food was still it was still pretty sugar carb heavy, but um, I I enjoyed them. Yeah, I mean, I, and I've made mistakes. You know, I I thought for the you know I did um, rice cakes at one point. I was thinking, well, that's perfect. I got all those carbs in there, and so I slathered them down with peanut butter. Well, when you're dehydrated, eating a rice cake chunked down with peanut butter and you can't swallow it. <laughs> I went through my whole I went through my whole bottle before I left that's the aid station, just trying to get it down. <laughs> so. Some things work, some things don't. I, so I've screwed up every single race, Mark. Yeah. As oh, yeah, Lauren. It's it's always learning. It's always learning. It's always learning. You know, the easier races for me are the six hour races because even if you screw up a an aid station, you'll you'll be back around to the you'll be back around in thirty minutes. You can fix it. <laughs> so, I pound of bacon with me a couple weeks ago on my gravel ride. Oh, that's a cool idea. I was just like, hey, this isn't a race. I just munched on bacon for the first couple hours. <laughs> I don't think it worked out very well for me, but it tasted good. No, probably not. Um, well, I think that wraps up the show. Um, thank everybody for joining us. But the one thing I wanted to do before we sign off here, yeah. um, I wanted to bring up um, Mountain Bike Radio. That's what you're listening to this on um whether you're listening on the web or if you're listening on the app the apps are amazing um of course there's an android and a and an uh, iphone or ios app 
great things for the Microsoft too. But if you haven't been right, if you haven't been over to um, mountainbikeradio.com, go over there and check it all out. There's lots of new information there about the memberships kits. I mean, they're ordering mountain bike radio kits. If you're interested in uh, promoting uh, the podcast you like, um, you can do that. Um, there's casual wear shirts and hats and things like that. But all of that stuff goes to help keep mountain bike radio running. And so, don't think that anybody's making a fortune off of this, but we are trying to keep Ben from having to pour a ton of money into keeping the servers up and all the benefits and things that he does and all the promotions he does and all the advancements of the app and things like that. So anything you do over on that side um, to help support him, whether it's becoming a member or donating some money to him, if you like what you hear or buying some stuff, some gear. Um, really goes, it really, really, really goes a long way. And I appreciate it. I know Steve would appreciate it and Ben would really appreciate it. Just go over and check it out. If you see, think that it's useful, man, get in touch with Ben, find out how you can help, you know, drop him a line, order some stuff. Additionally, um, as I mentioned on that, there's a, a link over there for amazon.com shopping. And so if you're going to buy something off Amazon, go to mountain bike radio, go through that link. It doesn't cost you anything. And what happens is Amazon actually kicks back a very small percentage of what you purchase to mountain bike radio, just by using it. You're going to pay the exact same price for whatever you're buying. Um, but it actually will kick back a little bit of money. It's a very small percentage to Ben, which keeps everything rolling. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can get in touch with myself, Mark at mountainbikeradio.com or Steve at Steve at mountainbikeradio.com. You can also check us out on the last aid station, um, on Facebook or last aid station on Twitter. Uh, I think that's, um, about it. Uh, what would you like to say, Steve? Yeah, you can actually, I've have, uh, I'm Hamlin SM out on Twitter. You can find me out there on Twitter okay. as well. But, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's a good show. The, uh, the other thing I was going to mention is you can play the episodes right from the webpage too. So you just go to the homepage you can scroll through because there's, I don't know how many different types of shows there is now, but nine or 10 different shows, but you can scroll down and see all the different shows and play which ones you want. Right. And as much as we'd like you to visit mountainbikeradio.com, there's lots of other ways to listen to it without actually going to the webpage. If you want to listen to it on iTunes, yep, it's there. You want to watch it, listen to it on Stitcher. Yep. It's there. Um, If you want to listen to it on the app, yep, we can do it that way too. So there's lots of different ways to listen to it. Uh, If you go to mountainbikeradio.com, you'll see all those different ways. I Um, believe soon the app is going to have – because right now you can search by podcast. But pretty soon I believe the app is going to have a drop-down menu to just pick the podcast and it will bring up just those. Because I'm sure there's people that listen to it that have like a certain three or four of the shows that they listen to religiously and maybe a couple that they catch here and there. But Right. But yeah, this has been great. I, the, uh, um, you know, like Mark said earlier, if, uh, you got a good race story uh, or if you're a promoter and you want to hear your race out here, get in contact with us. Um, it, it takes a lot. It does take a lot of time for us to put together, uh, the recaps and kind of gather that stuff up. So, um, it's, it's a lot of people like hearing the stuff out there. So if you've got a rate, a recap, feel free to, to hit us up, send stuff, stuff our way and, uh, look forward to, um, in the very near future, um, a race recap of the Kohuta race, the NUE coming up in the next three or four days. Um, and then we'll probably have that highlights out probably within the next week or so. Um, there's also some other races going on currently that we're going to try to have included into that podcast. 
Um, and then for those of you who are racing on the East Coast and racing endurance mountain biking and racing in the NUE, look up Steve and I at the Mohican 100. Both of us are signed up for that race. Yes. We'll be staying on site somewhere in that campground over there. And um, we're looking to do something, some type of mountain bike radio listener get together. We'll provide the beverages. You provide the fun and entertainment and conversation. And so we're really looking forward. We're actually looking forward to a cool weekend of racing and everything yeah, that, everything that um, Ryan O'Dell and his group at Mohican put together. So good stuff. Is that a wrap? That's a wrap. That's a wrap. We're well, out of here. All right. <laughs> See you everybody. Thanks a lot for listening.